0: Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. As we reach the end of the year, 2021 in this case, I wanted to bring you something a little different, maybe a little more foundational and perhaps even mind expanding. By looking at wine from a different perspective, I think we can gain a greater appreciation and understanding of it, and also get some inspiration about how we could think completely differently about it, and how that might make it something less exclusive, more sustainable, and more fun. My guest for this episode is Sandor Katz. Sandor is the author of the books Wild Fermentation, as well as The Art of Fermentation, which could be considered the fermentation bible, and for which he received a James Beard Award. And his most recent book is Fermentation Journeys. Please check them out. The information Sandor gives in this episode could change not only the way you think, but also the way you eat and drink. I've actually been inspired to incorporate new ideas and ingredients in my winemaking and food making because of this conversation. Sandor explains how the context of human life and all life is biodiversity. The human body is host to over a trillion bacteria and countless other microorganisms. Rather than eliminate this microbiome, we need this community to be robust to maintain our health. Fermentation, in the context of a global pandemic, is a profound shift in thinking, away from sterility and toward diversity and resilience. And fermentation is a natural result of the abundance of life. Fermentation explodes categories and defies labels. It prevents waste and reuses byproducts. Sandor's mission is is to revive our connection to these ancient processes. And after this conversation, I hope you feel as reconnected as I did. Happy New Year! Enjoy! One note, unfortunately, something happened in the recording and my audio was not picked up by my microphone, but was picked up by my laptop microphone. So I sound terrible throughout. Uh, I tried everything I could to make it as best as possible, but it's terrible, I'm just being frank. So. I've turned down the volume a bit on my audio, and there's so much great information that Sander gives that I think the terribleness of the audio is beside the point, but heads up. Sander, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Adam.
0: It's a real pleasure to talk to you. I learned about you from the gentleman down at the border uh, who said he did some uh, a little workshop where you came down, uh, uh, Mr. Navan, uh, Gary Navan, uh, who you know is a is studying fermentation, indigenous fermentation beverages in the Southwest in Mexico, and and your name came up. And just in exploring about you, I was shocked I hadn't heard about you sooner, and immediately immersed myself in all of your ideas and started, you know, my own little local fermentation with your ideas and uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you through book and I'm really excited to get to know you, you know, now, today. all right. I, I well, well it's, a, it's, it. yeah. a, it's a
1: pleasure to meet you too. And um, I've been a huge fan of Gary's work, um, you know, since long before we met each other. And, um, you know, he's been a, he's been a huge supporter of my work and has had me down there uh, 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 teaching workshops. And um, I'm so glad that he steered me, steered you to my work and uh, such a pleasure to be talking.
0: Well, and, so you're, you're a little unusual as a guest. I'll just put it out there. And not because of your being an unusual person, although I'm sure you are in a good way. Uh, but you're not necessarily a wine person. Is that right? I mean, not that you don't love wine or whatever, but that's not the kind of fermentation that you are an expert in.
1: Right. Well, I, I mean, you know, I am really a fermentation generalist. And, um, you know, I've written several <laughs> books wild fermentation, the art of fermentation, and just recently, fermentation journeys that are, um, you know, broad how to manuals of fermentation. And um, so, you know, it's not that I, you know, have no idea about wine. I mean, certainly I have like been part of grape harvest and, and, and winemaking and, you know, and a little bit about winemaking. And certainly I do uh, uh, at home a fair bit of what would be called country winemaking, um, you know. making What, what making... qualifies
0: as country? Yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, so, I mean, country wine would be so, you know, I mean, wine, as you well know, would be typically, you know, grapes pressed and it's, you know, the fermentation of the juice pressed out of the grapes. But, um, uh, there, you know, in English speaking lands, there's a phenomenon called country wines where people make wines from all kinds of other fruits. So some classic examples might be blackberry wine. Uh, blueberry wine, raspberry wine. But I mean, basically you can make a sugar water solution and infuse nearly any fruit or herbal flavoring in it and fermented into alcohol. And that would be a country wine. And and not, not only fruit flavors. I mean, my God, I've had tomato wine, jalapeno wine, onion wine, garlic <laughs> wine. I mean, you know, any kind of vegetable you can make into a wine. But, you know, basically what you're doing is you're infusing the flavor of the fruit, the vegetable, the herb into a sugar water solution and fermenting that.
0: And have you encountered any of those that were really sublime, like anything that really sticks in your head, or something that you make regularly because it's so good.
1: Oh yeah, sure. No, I mean I make blueberry wine every year. I, I mean, yeah, for, I've heard for, good things about
0: blueberry. Yeah,
1: for me, it's about you know what resources are available, um, and right. you know, I mean, wine began in these regions of the world where. Grapes grow really easily and well. And so, you know, that's what people ferment, is what's abundant in their lives. And, um, you know, I also make, um, you know, I make make rice alcohol. I I make it in a Chinese tradition that I call miju, and I make it in a Japanese tradition, sake. Um, You know, using different notions of of, of starters. And I make a lot of mead, which is, um, you know, honey diluted and fermented. Um, so, you know, I make various alcoholic beverages and I also do a lot of fermentation of vegetables and I'm always exploring different styles of fermenting vegetables. And, you know, I make breads and do other kinds of fermentations of grains and I dabble in cheese making and yogurt and kefir and vili, and other styles of fermented milk. And I, you know, basically there's nothing we could possibly eat or drink that cannot be fermented. Um, you know and fermentate you know fermentation traditions are really widespread around the world and um, you know I mean I, I like wine fine um, um, I'm just not an expert in wine you know I mean I don't really oh no uh, that's
0: it sounds like you kind of are <laughs> I think I think uh, maybe we you know or I should have rephrased that differently. We just need to expand our understanding of what wine is and and not think so narrowly about it as uh, limited only to grapes. Uh, and in in with that kind of understanding, I think you're absolutely an expert in wine. Um, and and that, and honestly, I think that's a big part of what I you know like wanted to bring you on for was to help expand our understanding and definitions. So it's not so narrow. Um, and to think about fermentation as a bigger idea that isn't, you know, the sole propriety of any one beverage or anything like that. Um,
1: yeah. Well, or, I mean, substances, <clears throat> and of course, you know, I mean, fermentation, I, I mean, fermentation is so vast. I mean, in every part of the world, people ferment. I mean, I have not come across a, a single example of a culinary tradition that does not incorporate fermentation, Uh, in some way or another. By far the most widespread form of fermentation is the production of alcohol. Um, it would be easy to be someone who enjoys alcohol in the United States and imagine that there are, you know, two ways in which alcohol can be fermented, beer or wine. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I love both beer and wine, but, you know, they're just they're just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I, I actually, I, right. I, I, I recently read a book about Baiju, which is a, a, a Chinese distilled liquor and, um, you know, Baijiu is, by many orders of magnitude, the most popular alcoholic beverage in the world. And, you know, yeah. we've never heard of it or most, of, most right. of us have never heard of it. So, I mean, you know, fermentation is vast um, and it's an integral part of human cultural uh, experience everywhere in the world. And, you know, wine is is, um, you know, a manifestation or rather a number of manifestations of it. But there are, you know, many, many others.
0: Right now, you mentioned a couple of these things that you're doing with rice, etc. I'm guessing those are recipes in in one of your books, at least. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, okay. uh, so especially my my latest book, Fermentation Journeys, which is really about foods and beverages that I've learned about in my um, in my travels. Uh, uh, mostly in recent years, teaching about fermentation. Um, and so there's a recipe for Miju, which is the sort of you know Chinese uh, uh, fermented beverage made from uh, sticky rice and also uh, for a very uh, uh, old, traditional, simple style of sake called the Bodai Moto Method.
0: Oh, okay. And I know that local is a big part of, the fermentation uh, world that you are promoting and, and like to be part of, are are you getting rice there in Tennessee?
1: Well, I mean, I would say that local is part of, I mean, every fermentation tradition everywhere.
0: Right. Um, You know, and
1: it's like, okay, what, what, what do you ferment? Like, I, I, I mean, maybe, you know, the, the, the modern, you know, wine industry would be an example of, Okay, the thing you want to ferment, you go to great lengths to grow everywhere, um, grapes. Um, But in general, people's, uh, uh, you know, the, the focus of fermentation is, you know, what is our abundant resource? What are we growing more of than we know what to do with? And, um, you know, in, in some places that might be grapes, in some places that might be apples, in some places that might be soybeans, in some places that might be uh, cabbages, in some places that might be wheat, in some places that might, might be barley. But that's what people ferment is what's abundant in their lives. They're not, you know, nobody's fermenting the thing that is the most precious, Um, um, you know, that they, that, that, that they guard because there's such a limited supply of it. Like people are fermenting what's, what's abundant in their lives. And so, you know, I'm a generalist. I'm, you know, I'm learning about all these fermentation processes. And so, sure. I mean, I definitely ferment what's abundant in my life. Like I have fermenting radishes, I have fermenting chestnuts, um, <clears throat> I have fermenting blueberries. Uh, I have fermenting turmeric. Um, but you know, I also experiment with things that um, you know are not growing around here, and like to learn different processes. So, no, I, I do not have a local source of rice. Um, uh, I, I, further southeast than here, uh, uh, people are definitely growing rice. But um, you know, I mean, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm mostly just going to the Asian market and buying rice that's commercially. I, no, I'm not. Okay. A, no, I... I mean, I, my 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 orientation is local. Vocalism, but I am by no means a purist. Yeah,
0: <laughs> no, and I oh god, there's so many things I would love to bring up and talk about in what you just said. All of those concepts, um, <laughs> but I love the idea of fermentation. Is in a, in a lot of ways a, a a result of abundance. Like it's a it's a sign of abundance when things are fermenting, and I think I've heard you say as I was you know sort of researching that. That that was in a way one of the things that led you to being the fermentation guru that you are is is the abundance of the garden that you were growing and what to do with all the stuff and I, I love this concept of like nature's abundance led you into this this thing can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, sure. Am, am, um, am I right
0: in bringing? Yeah, up? yeah, no, is no, that, no. I, a, absolutely, it,
1: absolutely. Like the you know the the, the garden led me into fermentation um yeah but 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 through an indirect route cool. um so yeah, I mean, what, as, what is as, your story <laughs> as a as a kid growing up in new york city i loved pickles um you know i wasn't thinking about learn i wasn't learning how to make pickles i wasn't thinking about how pickles were made i just loved pickles and i had a little reputation in my family and you know the pickles would always disappear from the jar quickly what you know once they were in the fridge and um you know, I was drawn to the flavor of pickles, and the pickles that we were eating. You know, I'm the grandson of immigrants from what's now Belarus, and we grew up eating, you know, New York deli pickles. You know, what we called sour pickles, um, where there's no vinegar added. It's it's you know, it's cucumbers in a saltwater brine. And I mean, I didn't know about how they were made. I didn't know that there was no vinegar added, but. It's a very distinctive flavor that I noticed as a kid was different from the flavor of other pickles that I would sometimes encounter, which I now understand are vinegar pickles. But I was really drawn to this flavor of lactic acid. Um, Then for a couple of years in my mid-20s, I was following a macrobiotic diet and macrobiotics places uh, an emphasis on the digestive benefit of pickles and other live ferments. And I started noticing that these pickles that i had been eating my entire life, that whenever I would eat them. I could feel the salivary glands under my tongue squirting out saliva. And I really began to associate these foods in a very tangible way with getting my digestive juices flowing. And I really started seeking out pickles and sauerkraut and other live ferments, you know, really as a, as a health practice. Um, But it wasn't until I left New York and moved down to rural Tennessee, which is now, you know, half of my lifetime uh, uh, ago, um, Uh, and I started keeping a garden that I had a practical reason to learn how to ferment. And, um, uh, you know, basically you know, I, I was such a naive city kid. It had never even occurred to me that in the garden, all of the radishes would be ready at about the same time. All of the cabbages <laughs> would be ready at about the same time. So, you know, Ooh. when I encountered this rather obvious fact of, um, agricultural production, um, you know, this light bulb went off and I was like, I should learn how to make sauerkraut because we had a nice little bed of, of cabbages. And, um, I knew that I liked sauerkraut and that sauerkraut had something to do with preserving cabbage. And, um, You know where I turned to learn how to make sauerkraut was the joy of cooking, and um, you know it was very straightforward. You know, chop vegetables, salt them, uh, pound them, or squeeze them to get them juicy, and pack them into a jar and wait. And um, and I couldn't believe how simple it was and how delicious the kraut that I made was, and it just made me want to start experimenting and playing around with mixing in other vegetables, varying the level of salt and the amount of time. And, um, you know, then I learned about country wines and made a sourdough starter. And, you know, I just went down the rabbit hole of fermentation. Um, And it's a very deep rabbit hole.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're still in it, right? Uh, I I, I find, and I don't know if you've found this to be true, but it sounds like, I mean, I, I've noticed for some people this the same thing happened where people sort of get into, first of all, like their local food. They want to, you know, they want to sort of remove themselves from, uh, you know, the, the, the food that is available in the grocery store most times. And they start, you know, it becomes that DIY thing where you're trying to make your own stuff. And I've, I've noticed a couple folks that I know who are in the natural wine making world have come from this fermentation past where they were in an apartment and now are, you know, on a winery making natural wine. Have you encountered that as well? Do you, I mean, has that rabbit hole, as I'm sure you've talked to many more people about fermenting foods and things, have you seen people skew into these different things that it's led them to?
1: Well, yeah, sure. I mean, any, anybody who's a, um, Well, I mean, not, not everybody, you know, who's a fermentation professional, but like anyone who decides to become a fermentation professional has to specialize in some way. Um, you know, just because it takes, a, you know, different resource to make wine than to make sauerkraut. It takes a different kind of different kind of equipment. So, I mean, it just, you know, it lends itself to a certain amount of specialization. So sure. I mean, people who get interested in fermentation broadly, you know, if they end up like becoming producers, it's usually of, you know, something or, or something else. Um, and, and certainly I have met, you know, natural winemakers who are extremely passionate and sort of, you know, like arrived there, you know, through broader passions than their passion for wine. Um, you know, I mean, I actually, in Australia last year, I spent some time, oh, I'm not going to remember the name of the farm. Uh, this guy, Anton, who has a beautiful biodynamic farm and is a farm maker inside, a winemaker in South Australia, but I mean, you know, he was, you know, he was all about his diversified farm and biodynamics. And the winemaking was almost like uh, like an outgrowth of the farm organism that he was thinking about in very, like, you know, Rudolf Steiner, biodynamic kinds of terms.
0: Right. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's it's that, I guess, uh, I, you know, you, you have examples on the other end of people who come from a sort of high end falling in love with fancy wines and then you know clear a plot of land and plant a sort of vanity vineyard that they want they have decided they're going to make the best wine in the world and then you have this other side that I feel like is a much more organic sorry they use that pun on the show a way of, of where people have sort of approached it from an ecosystem that is you know, wine is the outgrowth of, a, of an entire diverse system of foods and farming and animals and things like that. And it's, uh, you know, there's something really beautiful about that. Um, what, what is, what, like, what can you tell us about that connection to our local food and fermentation and how, you know, I, I know you've, you've talked a, a good bit about the importance of decentralizing our food system. Uh, And we'll just make that the food and beverage system. Um, What can you say about that?
1: Well, I I mean, you know, to me, that's really, really critical right now. Um, uh, You know, I think that I think that the you know, the pandemic really revealed maybe for many people for the first time, some of the vulnerabilities of the system that we have developed for, um, you know, centralized food production. And, you know, we've really we've really moved towards a system where, um, you know, different different forms of agricultural production have been, um, uh, you know, centered in different different geographic areas where they can be done most efficiently. Um, And then we have this sort of globalized system where, you know, food resources are being centralized, processed in central ways and then distributed through, um, you know, various, um, um, you know, mass distribution systems, the supermarkets, uh, increasingly uh, Internet-based distribution. And, you know, I guess that all of that is fine as long as it's fine. But, um, um, you know, there are hmm. so many different ways in which this system can be disrupted. And we just saw in the context of a pandemic, you know, various supply chains getting, you um, um, you know, getting disrupted and, you know, certain kinds of, um, you know, foods or beverages that people are used to seeing in the supermarket for temporary periods of time were, were unavailable. But, you know, if we think about like sort of, um, um, you know, um, uh, fuel supplies, uh, climate change, uh, extreme storms, political instability, you know, there are all of these ways in which our um, uh, huge supply chains can get disrupted and you know i don't want to be like you know sort of a paranoid or a or a a prepper but i do think as a practical (laughs) matter um you know in every region of the world it would be um it would be prudent for people and our political leadership to be thinking about expanding the productive capacity of food everywhere so and i'm not saying this as a you know um um a uh, 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 dogmatic localists that like, you know, for, you know, for our moral well-being, we only need to eat food from, you know, within 50 or 100 or 250 miles. I'm just saying that, you know, for our well-being and security, you know, everyone is more secure if their region can, you know, basically feed itself. And it doesn't mean that we can't like import bananas from a tropical place or import coconuts. I mean, we should enjoy our treats when we can, but we shouldn't be utterly dependent on their ability. Um, and, um, you know, I think we're, we're all more secure if, um, you know, not as individuals, but as regions, you know, we can meet most of, uh, you know, our, our, you know, daily requirements for, for sustenance. Um, and, and, and I think fermentation just really fits into that. I mean, you know, fermentation is always practical. It's not always about preservation, but you know, there's always a practical benefit. The food is not decomposing into a disgusting, ugly mess that nobody would ever eat, you know, and it's becoming <laughs> more stable for storage, or it's becoming more delicious, or you're producing alcohol, or it's becoming more easily digestible, or some toxic compound from the plant has been broken down. Um, so, um, you know, fermentation is just all about um, not only preservation, but, you know, making effective use of food resources more broadly.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, you, you've underlined a couple of times that you're you're not a purist in in these ideas. You just think they're practically very important and more than practically even, you know, just from a security and social well-being standpoint. Um,
1: well, that's practical.
0: How, Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) I guess it is very practical. Um, But how uh, this idea of uh, not being a purist, I think, can also spill over into fermentation itself and and our ideas around cleanliness and purity in that sense, especially, again, in the context of the pandemic and how, you know, paranoid about germs and, you know, hand sanitizer and, you know, bleaching the heck out of stuff, Uh, where, you know, what, what can you tell us about the, the microflora that we live amongst and, and, you know, the harm that it can cause us versus the, the health that it can cause us?
1: Well, I mean, you know, our, our context is biodiversity. Um, you know, a, a, an average healthy human adult is host to more than a trillion bacteria um, um uh, you know we we, we we are host to unfathomable numbers of different organisms and um, and they exist in great biodiversity and they provide services for us um you know we couldn't live without bacteria Bacteria enable us to effectively, extract nutrients from the food that we eat and actually they synthesize certain nutrients for us in our bodies so we don't have to find them from our food. uh, what we call our immune system is largely the work of bacteria in our gut. We are learning that bacteria play a role in regulating our brain chemistry and almost every system of our bodies. Um, and so, you know, we need, to, need, we need bacteria. And, you know, this is not to deny that there exist bacteria and viruses that can make us sick. But for the most part, you know, the, the microbiome that's part of us, will protect us from, you know, the organisms that we're potentially vulnerable from. So, you know, we just we have to embrace biodiversity as our friend. And it's not that like nobody ever dies from, um, you know, sort of something that comes from uh, bacteria or viruses. But, you know, we just we we, we can't um, we can't reject them. You know, we we, we we need them too much. And in terms of food, you know, traditional fermentation all involves mixed cultures. So, you know, this idea that like, you know, natural winemaking is a new thing. That's ridiculous. Like, you know, until the 20th century, all wine was natural wine. And it's that in the 20th <laughs> century, we sort of, you know, we developed the ability to sort of select, um, um, you know, yeast strains for various, you know, desirable characteristics, and you know, in order, and, and so that introduced the idea of killing the rest of the organisms that are part of the um, that, that that are part of the juice. Um, mm-hmm. And also this idea that, okay if we want to be sure that the singular organism is going to um, um, dominate, then we have to, um, you know, really use chemicals to kill, you know, any residue of any organisms that might be, you know, in the plastic tube or the vessel or the tools that we're using. And so, you know, we've developed this idea that, like, we can't do this without these uh, sanitizing chemicals. And, you know, I mean... Sure, I, I mean, in the context of like you know small scale home brewing and you know trying to make wine with um, um, you know using uh, um, uh, potassium metabisulfide tablets uh, to kill uh, uh, all the organisms and you know sort of seed it with selected organisms that that could make sense, but for any kind of traditional mixed culture fermentation. There's no need to do that. And in fact, I mean, I would argue that, you know, using chemicals that sterilize things in your kitchen is a fantasy that we have been sold by the people who want to sell us chemicals. And I mean, there's all kinds of chemicals we could buy that will, you know, sort of kill bacteria uh, uh, and, and fungi right away. But then we're going to rinse them with our non-sterile water and handle them with our non-sterile hands and put them in our non-sterile dish racks. And, you know, it's like our, our homes are not a sterile environment. There are, you know, bacteria and yeast and other kinds of organisms, you know, floating around in the dust in our air. It's just, it's everywhere that, you know, the, 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 the world in which we live is a microbial matrix and, you know, all life is descended from bacteria. And no form of no multicellular form of life has ever lived without bacteria. And it's just, you know, that that's just our context. And um, traditional fermentation has always worked with this.
0: You've either just uh, injected several people with some great sanity or made people insanely paranoid and anxious about their world right now. (laughs) Um, no, I love that. Thank you for saying that. That was really beautifully said. I, that that's, yeah, my feeling as well. And 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 I do, you know, I think like we've seen that, and and it's lovely to hear you say that. I, um, w- in relation to that, what can you tell us about what you know about the history of of using these fermented foods and beverages for health, and how how can they help with our health?
1: well um, I mean sure the idea of you know fermented foods and beverages um, um, being beneficial for to our health, I mean, it's 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 ancient in in different traditions. And I would say that it's probably as old as the idea that food is beneficial to our health or can be beneficial yeah. to our health. And you know, in so many traditions, there's just sort of folklore about you know the 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 healing potential of different foods, you know. Um, um you know including wine i mean there's sort of lots uh, lots of ideas that you know moderate consumption of wine has certain um you know benefits to our long-term health um And, um, you know, certainly in Japan, there's folklore about um, the importance of miso and, you know, in Eastern Europe, there's a lot of folklore about, uh, you know, sauerkraut, sauerkraut juice, pickle brine, pickles, uh, 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 all of that. So, I mean, there's a lot of ideas about um, um, how... you know, fermented foods are especially healing. I would say that, uh, you know, from my perspective, I, I, first of all, fermented foods are so incredibly varied. It's very hard to generalize. Like, it's not as if wine has the same characteristics as chocolate, or the chocolate has the same characteristics as coffee or that coffee has the same characteristics as sauerkraut or that sauerkraut has the same characteristics as um, uh, bread. So, I mean, you know, all of the fermentation is so disparate that it is hard to generalize. But, you know, let me just bring to your attention sort of four broad ways that fermentation can can transform and enhance food nutritionally. So, number one, I would call pre-digestion. And this is the simple idea that while the food is fermenting, um, you know, the, the the fermentation organisms, the bacteria and or fungi are um, breaking down nutrients generally into simpler, more elemental, uh, more easily bioavailable forms. So um, I, I think that the most vivid example of this would probably be soybeans. You know, the reason why the vegetarian subcultures of the West adopted soybeans as almost a singular replacement for meat and milk is that they're considered to be the plant food with the most concentrated protein. The problem is that our human digestive bodies can't on their own extract the protein out of the soybeans, which is why you don't really hear about people sitting down and eating a big bowl of soybeans for dinner, the way they might with lentils or chickpeas or, or other kinds of um, uh, 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 legumes. Um, But you know, the, 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 Asian people who pioneered soy agriculture thousands of years ago recognized the indigestibility of soybeans and developed all of these ways to ferment soybeans with the result of pre-digesting them. Um, So basically, you know, the proteins get broken down into amino acids, the building blocks of proteins, and, you know, thereby become much more accessible. Um, um, another example of this would be that um, minerals in grains generally are tied up in these chemical bonds called phytate bonds that our bodies can't break down. Um, but um, uh, uh, fermentation you know, the bacteria fermentation can break down these phytate bonds and, you know, you can measure higher levels of iron and calcium and other dietary minerals in fermented grains than in grains that have been cooked without fermentation. Um, so, so digestion is really critically important and in so many foods makes, Nutrients more bioavailable. And it's for this reason that, you know, for instance, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization is very interested in fermentation. And they did a series of publications uh, decades ago now, um, highlighting how, in, you know, sort of um, uh, food scarce regions of the world, whatever food resources are available could be expanded through fermentation. People could get more nutrients out of their food if they fermented more of it. Um so then then another way that food is transformed I'd call, I would call detoxification and this is the idea of you know generally plant toxins um uh, cyanide compounds in cassava um, um, you know, things like taro with high levels of oxalic acid, but, you know, a, a, a broad range of plant toxins can be broken down into harmless forms through fermentation. And there are foods all around the world that cannot be safely eaten without fermentation. Um, you know, then beyond breaking down what's in the original food, fermentation enhances nutrients. So, um, Almost all fermented foods and beverages have elevated levels of B vitamins as compared to the raw foods that you begin with. Um, uh, And then there are all of these metabolic byproducts, uh, um, unique to different processes, some of which have been found to have extraordinary uh, beneficial properties. So, you know, all fermented vegetables have compounds called isothiocyanates that are regarded as anti-carcinogenic. Natto, this Japanese soybean ferment, um, um, has a compound that's gotten a lot of attention that, um, Basically, dissolves fibrin, which is what sometimes builds up inside people's blood vessels and um, uh, um, uh, uh, inhibits circulation. And so, this can be dissolved by this, you know, metabolic byproduct of this bacteria, Bacillus subtilis that ferments soybeans into this Japanese food called natto. So, you know, there are all kinds of, um, um, you know, nutrients generated by the organisms, which which can be a benefit. But then what I would consider to be the most profound benefit of fermented foods nutritionally would be the bacteria themselves. And, you know, contrary to, you know, what most of us, like, learned growing up about how, uh, you know, dangerous bacteria are and how much they need to be avoided... You know, as I mentioned earlier, we need bacteria in order to function well. We all have diminished biodiversity in our gut as compared to our ancestors, thanks to chemical exposure and uh, uh, um, diets with more limited fiber. Um, um, and so, you know, eating live fermented foods, fermented foods that have not been cooked or heat processed after their fermentation um, can be a great strategy for um basically restoring diversity of gut bacteria with potential benefits in terms of digestion, immune function, and potentially even mental health.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you for breaking that down. That's really great to hear. Um, I love that. Uh, well, you're welcome. So <laughs> um, where? What, what is, as a beginner with home fermentation, where would you suggest somebody start and, and, and what kind of sort of guidance or counsel would you, what, what consolation would you give people who are afraid to do this? Process?
1: Well, okay. I mean, first of all, I would just tell people, don't be afraid. I mean, everybody everywhere eats and <laughs> drinks products of fermentation every day. You're already eating and drinking products of fermentation every day without thinking about it. You know, if you- and
0: if Most it, people don't it, think it, of it, chocolate as a fermented food. You brought up chocolate and chocolate I, lo- yeah, I love that you brought that is, up.
1: Chocolate is almost all fermented at the harvesting end. So unless you're like, unless you live in a place where cacao is grown, you're not likely to see the fermentation of chocolate. Um Great. So, I mean, it just, it happened, you know, the 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 cacao fruits, the cacao produces these pods. And when you open up the pods, the seeds are, are each embedded in a juicy, delicious, uh, uh, fruity pulp. And so- Great. Um, you know, the, the initial fermentation is really just allowing that pulp to break down. Um, And, you know, it also, it also develops the biochemistry of the seed, but just as a practical matter, it's very hard to get that pulp off the seed before fermentation breaks it down. So, you know, I I mean, I think as a practical matter, the practice evolved because, you know, just to make it easy to remove the pulp from the, from the flesh. As it turns out, it also develops the, you know, the flavor and the biochemistry. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's, so it's pretty critical to the process. Um, but, but it also just, you know, makes separating out the seeds much, much easier. So, I mean, you know, chocolate is fermented, coffee is fermented, you know, bread and cheese are fermented, you know, almost everything has vinegar in it. Vinegar is fermented. Um, I I mean, so fermentation is already part of people's lives and nobody's getting sick from it, but, but, you know, generally what I recommend as, as a first process would be fermenting vegetables, sauerkraut. Um, You know, or there's many other styles to do it. But sauerkraut is just the most straightforward method, the dry dry salting method. Literally, all you do is shred vegetables, lightly salt them to taste, add other seasonings if you want, and then spend like five minutes, three minutes squeezing the vegetables or pounding the vegetables a little bit, breaking down cell walls, releasing juice. Once the vegetables Uh are nice and juicy, then i just pack them into a jar you already have a jar you could use sitting in your kitchen somewhere a, qu- a quart <laughs> jar will take about 2 pounds of vegetables to fill so, you know cabbage is classic but you can play around with other vegetables for sure and then you know ferment them for 3 or 4 days then taste it then press them down some more, leave them another three or four days. If you taste it at regular intervals, basically you'll begin to familiarize yourself with the spectrum of flavors that are possible because the acids accumulate over time, just as in winemaking, the alcohol accumulates over time. And, you know, I mean, in all the winemaking regions of the world, there are, you know, these, these like lovely light wine beverages that you drink after two weeks or something. Where it's you know partially alcoholic right. but but still sweet, and so same is true of sauerkraut. I mean, you can let it get super sour, um, um, or you can you know eat it after five days. Um, you know, depending on your taste, the the flavor will um, continue to acidify o- over time. Now, in terms of, you know, one of the reasons why I like to recommend uh, uh, fermenting vegetables is. A, there's no need to obtain a starter. I mean, you could make kombucha, but you need to find a starter. You could learn to make koji, but you need to find a starter. Certain ferments require starters, um, you know, that traditionally would have been, you know, local botanical resources um, um, that would be used as sources of the organisms. Um, But, you know, today it's possible to buy all these pure culture starters, little, you know, powders, you know, Analogous to you know purchasing yeast to make wine, um, but you know that's really a that that that's really a departure from the history. But the other reason why I recommend sauerkraut as a as a starter is it is the safest food we know. Like according to the USDA, they cannot find one single case anywhere in the world ever of. Um, illness or food poisoning from fermented vegetables. It's about as safe as it gets. Statistically, vegetables become much safer after you ferment them than they are raw. And we we read every year of, um, you know, outbreaks. From, this year it was uh, uh, a salmonella outbreak linked to onions. You know, one year it was cabbages. One year it was uh, lettuce. One year it was tomatoes. Um, you know, clearly you know, there's the possibility of incidental exposure to pathogenic bacteria. But if you were to take vegetables, you know, with some incidental exposure like that and ferment them, the lactic acid bacteria will end up dominating every time once you create the condition in which they will flourish, which is submerged. Um, um, And as they acidify the environment, they would knock out the pathogens. And, you know, this is just a very, um, you know, convenient and elegant fact is that you know none of the organisms that have the potential to make us sick can survive in an acidic environment. So you know once the once once the um, sauerkraut acidifies to a certain point, um, um, you know then even if it had been exposed to some pathogens, they would no longer be surviving. Um, but you do so, recommend so-
0: people wash their vegetables before fermenting. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm yeah, I mean, no, no, sure, sure, sure. You don't have to worry <laughs> that you'll wash the that you'll wash the bacteria off of them. I mean, I would never buy any okay. of those like vegetable detergent products. I would just use water. I do use water, but the last thing you want is grit in your in your home fermented vegetables. So you've you've <laughs> right. got to you've got to rinse your vegetables. But um, but. You know, that's all you're doing is rinsing them, and you don't you don't have to worry about like you don't have to peel them, you don't have to um, um, you know wash them in a special detergent. Just like you know, just rinsing things under underwater is sufficient.
0: And you mentioned the lactic uh, ac- lactic acid bacteria. I know that there is a correlation to wine to a certain degree with the malolactic activity that. Uh, some wines undergo, or that you know, most wines would undergo if you allowed them to grape wines. That is, um, th- how how closely related are those two things scientifically?
1: Well, I mean, basically, lactic acid bacteria are believed to be present on all plants growing out of soil on planet Earth. I mean, they are just they are so common. Um, you know, they are always present. So, you know, they're o- you're always going to have lactic acid bacteria on grapes. Um, you know, along, along with yeast, you know, and you're always going to have lactic acid bacteria on barley and on corn and on cabbages and on, you know, literally any plant growing out of soil on planet earth, Uh, you know, lactic acid (laughs) bacteria is, is just going to be there and part and be part of the picture. And so, you know, every other fermentation process is, you know, well, certain fermentation processes, Um, you you know, a lot of organisms create what, what microbiologists would describe as inhibitory substances that inhibit other kinds of organisms. So for instance, if I, um, you know, if I grow, um, uh, um, Koji or tempe, um, you know, th- those uh, uh, fungi, in the case of Koji, it would be a fungus called Aspergillus oryzae. In the case of Koji, it would be a fungus called Rhizopus, Oligosporus. But those fungi will specifically prevent the growth of most bacteria that would, would also be, be be present. But except in the case where an organism is specifically preventing it, Um, Lactic acid bacteria will just be part of of everything else. So like, you know, natural wines often have a little bit of a, you know, of a lactic acid edge to them. I mean, this is one of the reasons why a lot of people who are accustomed to the flavors of pure yeast wine, you know, which is something that, you know, Louis Pester pioneered in the late 19th century and only really became a widespread commercial possibility in the 20th century. But, you know, b- basically, you know, people people um, became accustomed very quickly to that being the clean taste of wine, and that like the flavor of lactic acid was somehow a, um, uh, a flaw in the wine. But, you know, I mean, I would argue that all wine until the 20th century had, you know, at least a, a, a modest level of uh, a lactic acid activity. And same with beer. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's this there's this great movement right now of sour beers. I love the sour beers personally. Um, and and, you know, I mean, my general impression would be is that until the availability of commercial yeast and the possibility of pure yeasted beers, you know, all beers had a little bit of a lactic acid edge to them. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, a lot of the alcohol traditions around the world, lactic acid is like, you know, sake making, like your starter involves both yeast and lactic acid. Like you have to have lactic acid bacteria and the, you know, that acidity is, you know, part of what enables the, um, the finished beverage to, um, to preserve, um, So, I mean, lactic acid just, you know, historically has been part, part of everything and, and, you know, not, not specifically a flaw.
0: Have you tasted uh, your wines and things with somebody who had a very different palate than yours? I imagine you have, uh, you know, a, a pretty finely tuned palate in, in a, in a very specific way or not a specific way, but in a. You know, with the exposure to all the fermentation that you have done, I, I imagine you you have a unique perspective, palate-wise, well, <laughs> when you taste I'm, things. Has you, mean, have you experienced that?
1: I would say that I have a, you know, I, I I would like to think that I have a very open palate. Like I'm, I'm like interested in a range of, of tapes. I mean, really the, the story that I flashed on when you said that is, um, you know, one time I was visiting my father, my father's 87 years old and lives in the Hudson Valley of New York. And, um, you know, he likes to, he likes to drink this beer called Genesee cream ale. And he's always got, he's always got some cans of that in his fridge and I was visiting him and I was in town with him. And I, I asked them to stop at this, like at this beer store, they had had a big selection of beers and I went in and I, I bought this like dry hopped sour beer in 16 ounce cans (laughs) and, um, um, you know, from a from a a beer maker I really like, and you know, I, I bought a four pack of cans. You know, he couldn't believe I paid twelve dollars for four cans of beer, and then you know, <laughs> then I we get home, I put it in the fridge, and um and and that evening I opened up one of the beers, and he's like, "Let me try your twelve dollar beer," and um <laughs> and I gave him a little glass of it, and he just made just the most horrible face, like. <laughs> Like, not only are you paying a ridiculous amount of money for a beer, but you're drinking something that tastes like this. And to him, it was just like horrible. And I was just tasting and thinking like, oh, my God, this is so compellingly delicious. This is so, um, you know, dry and full flavored. And, you know, I was just loving the flavor complexity of it. And, you know, for my father, it was like just a horrible nightmare that like, you know, his son (laughs) could like something like this. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and and pay good money for it for the torture. Um, did, well, what's your experience of drinking his beer? I mean, do you like when when you take a sip of his? Do you have the same reaction he has to to the one that you were drinking or?
1: No, no, no. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I'm easy. I mean, I don't think I've ever had a beer that like I didn't like, um, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I've certainly had beer that was like, Oh, that tasted weak. Oh, that was like watery. I, you know, it's more, it's more like that. It's more just like, you know, this right. beer I find, I find, you know, very unexciting. It's not that I find it horrible or I'm not willing to to, to try it. No, I mean, I, I, I'm, I am, I am like so easy, um, you know, I, mean, I, I, I don't mind, you know, if I'm in a, if I'm in a situation and, you know, people are sitting around drinking Coors Light, I could drink Coors Light, um, you know, I mean, I, like I love really strong cheeses, but, you know, if what's there is Velveeta, I, you know, I don't care. I'm, I mean, I'm just not a snob about any of this. I, you know, I, I, I absolutely have strong preferences, but um you know, right. I'm, it, it's not that I sort of like, you know, hate the stuff that, you know, doesn't meet my strong preferences. You know, I'm 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 I'm, I'm pretty OK with whatever.
0: And do you do you find yourself at home, uh, you know, growing? I, I should phrase this. How is there a seasonality to fermentation? I, I mean, obviously, there is based on what's growing. Hugely, hugely, but,
1: hugely, hugely. Right? There's a seasonality to fermentation.
0: Absolutely. And what's going on right now with you in your kitchen or home?
1: Well, let's see. Um, um, you know, uh, we're,
0: we're in mid December. We're end, yeah, mid December. Well,
1: okay. I mean, something that I might do today is so I have this like I have this huge vessel. I have this two hundred liter vessel. It's actually made as a oh. wine. It's it's one of the like stainless steel um, um, uh, variable capacity tanks that that you know small yeah, okay, sure, small yeah. wineries yeah. would use. And I have it filled yeah. with I have it filled with um, daikon radishes and uh, napa cabbages um, that you grew. Well, actually, they're from my friend's biodynamic farm, whose his farm is not far okay. away from here. So um, uh, I host I host a, mm-hmm. um, a workshop every uh, October, and part of the workshop is we go out to his farm and fill up a pickup truck with um, with vegetables. And, and then and well, my, student, my students helped me uh, uh, process them. But just this afternoon, I was going to go open it up and see how they're tasting, see if they've gotten like a, like a good level of acidity yet. So, yeah, I mean, you know, then October, November would be huge times here where I live when you would be sort of, you know, harvesting your fall brassica crops. And Mm. if you're going to put them up now, we've, as it turns out, we've had a very mild early winter and all this stuff is still popping in my garden. I mean, I've just got, I've got beautiful radishes, um, uh, uh, beautiful greens. So I'm still eating a lot of this stuff fresh, but, but I also have, uh, I also have a lot of that stuff fermenting. Then I have long-term ferments. I mean, I have, um, you know, miso fermenting in my cellar. Um, Okay. Uh, I have some uh, kind of ongoing pickling projects, meaning I, uh, um, like I said, in my new book, I have a couple of different concepts of these perpetual pickling mediums. So, uh, I have a jar of, uh, Tsai, which is a Chinese style of fermenting vegetables in a like spiced brine that you maintain. And I've maintained this one for over a year now, but I just put that some works. fresh, I just put some fresh, uh, uh um, Radishes in it yesterday. And then I also have this turmeric mash where I made a paste out of turmeric, garlic, turnips, salt, and a little bit of water. Um, And I made that over a year ago. And I just keep burying more vegetables in and and pulling them out. And that's really, really delicious. Um, I have sourdough. Right now I'm trying to revive my rye sourdough that I haven't used in about a year. Um, So mostly I, I use a wheat sourdough but um um uh i have an all rye sourdough and i love to in the winter time to make all rye, all rye bread so i'm trying to mm. i'm trying to revive my starter but it's a little sluggish um, yeah
0: have and, you um oh, sorry i was going to ask the daikon and the cabbages that are in the giant thing did would you do to those just a little salt and um and a mash I, or
1: i all i did was add salt and you know, probably in the whole, you know, two hundred kilos, I probably have like one kilo of um, fresh chili peppers that I threw in whole. Oh, nice.
0: Okay, and that's it. That's it. Just just, just, time.
1: Ve- just vegetables, salt, and chili peppers, and then you know, by midwinter, they'll they'll get a really strong sour flavor.
0: And I, also,
1: I bury a lot of the um, uh, radishes whole. I I I I really love like fishing out the whole ones, and and I feel like the whole ones just maintain such a nice um, uh, uh, crisp texture. And I love to like sort of show up in people's houses with that as like a you know a um, you know let's say someone invites me over for dinner. I love to show up with a just whole giant daikon to slice up that's already pickled.
0: Wow! Yeah, that sounds incredible. Well, I love that you, I mean, I I love putting wine in this bigger context that really is connected to everything that we consume. How, How would people get, oh, please go ahead. Go.
1: Well, then I was just going to, I'm just noticing, I mean, I have blueberry wine that I made this summer. That's still, still, still some bubbles are coming out of it. I have some, oh, um, wow. tr- I have some turmeric mead. I have some marigold wine. I mean, flower wines, so that's a whole other direction with really distinctive um, uh, flavors and really, um, you know, very um, evocative colors. Um Uh, And then also, I mean, we we started by talking about Miju and I have some, um, you know, I have some bottles of Miju that I just uh, um, uh, uh, completed before my most recent travels in the fridge. And those are delicious. And then one other thing is that when I make rice alcohol, there's always residue from Um, uh, in Japanese cuisine, they call it kasu. And I have pickles. You can make kasuzuke, which are vegetables pickled in the mm. residue of sake making, which are really amazing. Um, and then mm-hmm. I, I use it. I, I use it in all kinds of things. I mean, I've, I've made bread using that as the primary leavening. Um, this morning, I put some. Ooh. I, I mix some in with my scrambled eggs, and it's just got a beautiful, um, uh, you know, almost cheesy kind of a flavor um that it lends to the eggs so um so yeah i mean you know between the primary processes and you know finding innovative ways to use some of the byproducts of the processes um fermentation keeps me busy
0: it sounds like it. It sounds like a full time thing, and it sounds—I mean, honestly—super inspiring. I think anybody listening to this from the wine world is probably just like taking notes of different ideas for new kinds of wines, you know, and co-ferments and things like that. I mean, I am personally—you well,
1: know—and and I mean, just anything local. Yeah. just just talking about like um, you know the idea of using byproducts and also. Exploding categories. You know, one of the things that that when I I, I was in Italy a couple of years ago for this international slow food event, Terra Madre, and um, uh, in the vendors right outside the event, there were all of these like um, Italian micro brewers. And I felt like some of them by, by incorporating, you know, either um, um, wine lees at the end or, um, you know, skins from, from earlier in the process. But I, I felt like some of these uh, um, beer brewers were kind of blurring the 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 categories between beer yeah. and wine, which we think of as, as hard categories. And, you know, that just made me super happy. And, 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 and yeah. they were delicious, you know, these beverages that kind of crossed, crossed the, this categorical divide. Um, so, um, you know, in the world of fermentation um, that makes me happy. I mean, nobody's really invented yeah. any new, any brand new fermented foods or beverages in hundreds or, Arguably thousands of years, um, but we what we have a lot of going on right now. Is you know very exciting um, cross pollination between yeah
0: different kinds and reefs
1: and so like it seems you know, like read it. The people who are making yeah. um, sake in Nashville proper sake, they're collaborating with a beer maker and they're using some of their um, uh, koji uh, uh, in beer. So I, like, I just love, I love this blurring of the traditional categories.
0: Yeah. I mean, labels are, you know, uh, not, yeah. The further we can get from labels, the better in my opinion. Um, and you, it sounds like, you know, in a lot of ways we're rediscovering things that were done a long time ago that got lost over the last couple of generations in an industrial sort of commercial American food system. Um, and we're like, oh, wait, there's this whole living culture, <laughs> no pun intended again, of all of these foods that we can, you know, just, you know, geek out on and, and really enjoy and expand what we're experiencing, both palate wise and health wise, and, and in terms of being secure and sustainable in, in our local communities as well. Sounds, uh, you know, and again, sort of that reconnection to the abundance of nature and, and using and capitalizing on what is just exploding around you and making the most of it. I think it's fantastic. You're, yeah. I mean, you call yourself a revivalist, right? A fermentation revivalist, or that's one of your potential potential.
1: Yeah, no, sure. That's 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 how that's how I have been describing the work that I do because, well, I mean, you know, as I've said a couple of times, you know, fermentation is an integral part of how people everywhere make effective use of whatever kind of food resources are available to them, and um, you know, just like procuring food itself, it's just been part of you know the the practice that either people were part of or that they were witnessing around them. And, you know, we, we've really like sort of taken food production, including fermentation, and it's largely disappeared from, uh, you know, our daily lives and our communities. And instead it's, um, instead it's really focused, um, uh, you you know, or, 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 largely centralized. And so when I call myself a fermentation revivalist, it's really the idea of, you know, reviving our connection To these ancient processes that have been and continue to be so important in our lives and, you know, to not be afraid of them. It's it's not that I think that, you know, it's essential that everybody be fermenting for themselves in their own kitchen, but I think it's important (laughs) that people not... um, that people not be intimidated by the idea of that. That anyone with the with the slightest interest in engaging in fermentation, you know, be able to feel empowered to do so. And I think that you know, because of the war on bacteria that we grew up in the midst of, it's easy for people to be intimidated and for people to imagine like, oh, that might be potentially dangerous. Um, oh, maybe I need a degree in microbiology to be able to um, attempt that. Maybe I need a laboratory where I can perfectly control conditions. And, you know, by talking about this as a fermentation revival, you know, I, I mean, what I'm trying to offer to people is, you know, actually like, no, this doesn't need a, 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 a microscope or a laboratory or a knowledge of microbiology. You know, fermentation is a, you know, is, is a, it's a simple practice that emerged everywhere in the world and can still be done in simple ways. And it's all about manipulating environments and, you know, the sections of my books are all about, you know, how to manipulate environments in order to make different kinds of foods, you know, getting the vegetables submerged under the brine, protecting the wine from oxygen as it ferments, you know, things like that.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, and speaking of your books, uh, how can people, what's the best way for people to grab your books? Obviously they're available everywhere. You're, you've got a James Award for your second book, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me t-
1: let me tell you about the three books. So I have Wild Fermentation is my first book, and that came out in 2003 and was revised in 2016, and you know, it's a book of you know, recipes, how to ferment all kinds of things. Uh, the Art of Fermentation came out in 2003. It's a much, much longer book. Um, it's also focused on how to ferment things, but um, I, I really departed from the recipe format in that book. So it's more, you know, describing processes, describing ranges of proportions I've encountered and, you know, different kinds of seasonings, but it's not exactly uh, um, formatted into recipes, but lots of information. Mm-hmm and information beyond the practical how-to. It has a lot of information about microbiology, a lot of details from anthropology and history. And, you know, it's just a a, a sort of all-around fermentation resource that's you know, as I, as you mentioned, it got a James Beard award. It's gotten a lot of great attention. Um, you know, it's certainly been my, my, my selling book. Um, some people have, have thought it was like too much information, more than they want, you know, they, they want to learn how to make <laughs> the Bible, And that right? was just a little bit TMI. Um, and then my most <laughs> recent book, which has really only been out for a little more than a month. Um, is called fermentation journeys, and it's you know it's recipes and and stories and f- lots of photos, um, but it's about foods and beverages that I've encountered in my travels around the world, and you know lots from Latin America, lots from China and Japan, um, but really things from from every region of the world. Um, And so those are my books. I have a website too, wildfermentation.com. You can find out more about my books or order them from local friends of mine via my website. But also you can get them wherever you'd like to get books. I would encourage you to you know, support local bookstores, um, um, you know, rather than the, you know, online mass retailers, but anywhere where you get, where you get books, you should be able to find, uh, uh, my books. And also my website has information about, I I do a lot of teaching. It has information about my, my workshops. Um, lately some of that has been online, but, you know, increasingly I'm doing some in-person, uh, 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 teaching and um and also it just has links to all kinds of fermentation related resources that exist out there on the worldwide web.
0: I love that. Well, thank you so much. This is uh I mean truly inspiring and and just mind-opening, I think in a lot of great ways. So, thank you so much for this.
1: Okay, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and um yeah. thanks for I mean, if you have talking. any closing
0: thoughts, feel free. Like any parting wisdom for anybody
1: well, I mean, just my in main,
0: relation to, huh? yeah, please.
1: I, I mean, my main, my main parting wisdom would just be, you know, don't overthink fermentation. Don't project all <laughs> of your anxiety about bacteria onto the idea of fermentation. Fermentation is very much a strategy for safety in food. And, um, you know, all you need to do is, you know, make sure you understand what kind of conditions you're trying to create and then, Do your best to create those conditions and, um, um, you know, expand your fermentation horizons and have fun doing it. I love
0: it. Well, thank you again, Sander. I really appreciate it.
1: Okay, Adam, it's been great.